My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Still Socialism in the Time of Corona. This episode explores a perennial issue for socialist labor organizing, namely how to approach sexism, racism and other violations of civil rights. When and how should unions fight against these violations for their own sake? rather than as strictly workplace issues. My guest is Lisa Shu, a member of Boston DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and previously co-chair of its labor working group. Shu is also a member of the Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus in DSA. She is currently a staff organizer for Unite All Workers for Democracy, or UAWD, a rank-and-file caucus in the UAW, the United Auto Workers, led primarily by auto workers with growing support in other sectors of the union. UAWD is fighting to pass a union-wide referendum vote later this year on adopting direct elections of its International Executive Board, otherwise known as one member, one vote. You can find links in the show notes. Shu was also formerly a member of and staff organizer for UAW Local 5118, the Harvard Graduate Students' Union. Like many newer members of DSA, Shu joined the organization during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And that is where our conversation begins. So I think my political views um, only really started to shift after, you know, the 2016 election. Hmm. Um, I was (laughs) um, embarrassingly um, a Hillary supporter. Um, But then, you know, I think the outcome of the election really threw me for a loop. Hmm. Um, You know, you discovered that um, I... uh, did some work in um, international development, um, and I actually went to grad school to become an economist, hmm. uh, development economist, uh, and you know, studying for those who don't know, studying um, you know, economic growth and poverty in um, developing countries, global south. Um, I focused on sub-Saharan Africa and then later Brazil. Um, but uh, the twenty sixteen election really uh, kind of turned my focus to an extent away from international um, development and toward uh, domestic politics. And, you know, um, and it, you know, just shifted me like more and more to the left. Um, And um, I still finished my PhD in, um, you know, on international development topics, but in around 2018, when I was finishing up, um, I got involved with, um, our graduate students union at Harvard, um, which now is uh, UAW Local Five One One Eight. So that was how I got involved in labor movement. You know, I was I was interested, and you know, it really I think if we had not had a union, you know, where I was working and studying, I, I'm not sure what my entry point would be. So I'm just will be forever grateful to, um, you know. Uh, my union because of that. Um, So, you know, and then another really interesting thing, which I don't get too much of an opportunity to talk about, which I think is really important, which I haven't heard much, uh, I I don't hear as much people in labor and DSA talking about is um, kind of the impact of Me Too. Um, Mm. And that actually also played, I think, an important role in my radicalization. Um, So, uh, at Harvard, there, if you Google the name Jorge Dominguez, you will <laughs> come up with like all this news coverage of his like 40 year long history of harassing women in the Harvard government department, like undergrads, grad students, staff, junior <laughs> faculty. And this, this came out during Me Too, and it really caused um, quite a lot of shock on campus. And, you know, since then, there have been other harassment cases, um, econ department, anthro. Um, so, you know, I think uh, but our union really um, ended up making gender-based harassment 
um, like one of its top issues. Hmm. And I think that was really smart. And, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I got involved in so heavily in organizing with the union. Um, and it's something we're still fighting for, um, you know. Uh, so, um, but, you know, Me Too really made me um, really deepened my uh, distrust of a lot of institutions and, you know, employers specifically. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I got involved with labor and the UAW. Um, and then uh, around that time when I was getting involved with the union, I was also meeting a lot of socialists and people in DSA. And I think that eventually helped me make the leap into um, identifying as a socialist and mm. um, getting really active in DSA. Um, and then, yeah, yeah and sorry, <laughs> just to bring this up to the present, I, I ended up working as a staff organizer um, in the Harvard Graduate Students Union for about two and a half years. And then um, I decided to leave to kind of do something else in labor. Um, and around that time, you know, UAWD, I think, was starting to um, ramp up efforts to organize for this referendum vote on direct elections. Um, and we fundraised, uh, created, um, Now we, we now have two organizers. Um, hmm. And yeah, so that's how I got involved with them. And Lisa, UAWD, for people who haven't heard of it, uh, is, um, is, is, is what exactly? Yeah, so UAWD stands for Unite All Workers for Democracy. Uh, we're a rank and file caucus of UAW members organizing uh, for democratic reform in the union. Uh, and for those who don't know, the UAW is in dire need of many reforms. Um, it's been it's been run by a one-party state for the last, I suppose, 50 or 70 years. Um, they call themselves Administration Caucus. Hmm. Um, it is very hard to be a dissenter from within, um, you know, the Administration Caucus. And all interna international reps in the union um, are... Uh, by default members of the caucus, only one dissident has ever been elected to the International Executive Board in the last, I think, 40 years. Mm. Um, so, you know, we have a really sort of long road ahead of us in terms of um, democratizing the union and making it, you know, because the other thing that lack of democracy does in a union is really um, stultify it and weaken it um, and, uh, you know, uh, the level of militancy <laughs> has mm. uh, declined, um, you know. So, so uh, the, the thing we're focused on at the moment um, is, uh, and you know, I didn't even mention the corruption. <laughs> um, like, so you probably know um, at this point, I think eleven former UAW officials, like top officials, have been sentenced, um, plus two more former presidents of UAW. Um, and uh, as a result of the federal investigation into the corruption, a consent decree was signed between the UAW and the Department of Justice that calls for a six-year monitorship over hmm. the union. Um, and it also calls for a referendum vote to be held on whether to adopt direct elections of um, the top officers in the union, the International Executive Board, which hmm. includes the president, uh, vice presidents, um, and, and regional directors. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of, when those things made the news, I, I sort of paid attention to them, and it's so much like a mob, you know, it, it just has the feel of like a, a oh, mob, yeah. you know, minus maybe the overt violence, but uh, just well, about everything, yeah. Yeah, no, I was talking to a friend yesterday who made the exact same connection. It's like, who needs the mob when you have <laughs> UAW officials, you know, accepting bribes, um, shaking down contractors, um, you know, spending money on alcohol <laughs> and cigar <laughs> and golf trips. Like, really, you it's like almost unbelievable, hmm. you know. We didn't need to be infiltrated by the mob. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Lisa, this, uh, you know, wasn't one of the questions I, I sent you, but uh, you mentioned Me Too, and, um, uh, you know, you said uh, we in DSA perhaps don't 
talk about it as much uh, and but it's what actually got you uh, kind of uh, you know uh, radicalized um, uh, you know during your work and so I mean I do you want to say more about that like in terms of why do we why why are we not paying as much attention to it as we as we should um, and how should we pay more attention to it, you know, uh, as as socialists? Yeah, that is such a great question. Um, I, I try to plug this article every time <laughs> the, the subject comes up. My friend Ege Yimisak, who was a key organizer um, in the Harvard Graduate Students Union, wrote a piece in the Drift magazine. Um, I forget exactly what it's called. Um, uh, Me Too, it's called Me Too Strike Test, and it's hmm. about how we organize the strike around protections from harassment and discrimination. Hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, a lot of people said, <laughs> you know, Harvard grad students would never, first, we, they would never form a union, then they would never go on strike. And obviously, we we did both things. And, you know, it it took a lot of hard work to, you know, convince people that unions um, could be a form of civil rights. Hmm. Uh, action, you know, um, because I, I do think a lot of people still see unions as only addressing like very bread and butter economics and issues and benefits. And certainly those things are important for, for all workers. But, um, but I suppose this is the reason why one of the reasons why, you know, I, I wish we kind of talked about it more in DSA because um, they're just incredibly expiring examples of labor unions fighting for um, these kinds of issues um, and civil rights issues. Um, the University of Michigan's grad union um, had an abolitionist strike, um, hmm. you know, in summer of 2020. One of their, they went on strike over COVID safety and, um, you know, defunding the Ann Arbor police. And they unfortunately um, didn't win, I think, um, that demand because public strikes are unprotected, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, public sector strikes are unprotected in the state of Michigan, um, as they are in Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's just such an amazing example of, you know, you know, I, I, I would, ju I just wish there were more, um, I mean, there, you know, there were a lot of amazing examples of, you know, the labor movement standing up in solidarity for Black Lives Matter and, you know, many other um, issues related to, you know, race and gender and civil rights in, in the past year but I, I do yeah I do kind of wish we talked about it more in DSA and mm. I, I think me too is probably seen like as a very liberal sort of thing mm. um, and I didn't experience it that way exactly so I, I don't know I couldn't tell you I don't know if I'm really answering your question <laughs> no no that's uh, no that's 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 great it's you know I'll, I'll you know, even your raising it made me think how, you know, I think I was paying attention to me to really as a separate set of things. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, of course, cheering for, you know, the prosecution of the people who got exposed and so on. But yeah, I, I don't think I have, I'd actually made the connections myself. So, um uh, you know, and it does lead us to, you know, one of the questions I was, uh, that came up in the panel that we were both, uh, that you were moderating the other day, um, you know, how do we work as socialists within sort of labor organizing? And um, so in this case, how did you, or how did your union sort of decide? So was the argument that Me Too is, also a labor issue broadly defined or was it that even if it's not a traditional union or labor issue so what uh, you know we should have something to say about it as a union like yeah was there a difference you know in approaches yeah um well it actually it's interesting because um i feel like the demand actually coalesced around like a kind of legalistic thing which is um you know, uh, every, virtually every contract has something called a union contract has something known as a grievance uh, procedure, right? Hmm. Uh, 
So uh, when, you know, uh, a clause in the contract is violated, you can grieve it. Um, and there are usually escalating steps, you know, like sometimes you start with sort of like an informal conversation, you know, or your steward like helps you like write a letter to the chair of the department or your unit. Um, and then, you know, it can escalate. Uh, and uh, in our contract, the uh, sort of final escalation is third party arbitration, hmm. which means, um, you know, a third party arbiter comes in and, uh, you know, does an investigation, does fact finding, uh, does interviews and decides, you know, ultimately was the contract violated or not. So, you know, this is like just the great, amazing thing <laughs> about having a union contract, which is that, you know, obviously there has to be organizing behind the contract, you know, a contract doesn't have really have teeth if it's not enforced. But, you know, if, if you do have a contract that the rank and file enforces, um, then, uh, you know, the, the employer is really ceding that power. They no longer have ultimate power, hmm. right, for you in, in your working conditions. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, what happened with uh, Me Too, and I think especially on, on many college campuses, um, is just a heightening of the realization that Title IX was not really there to protect um, students and mm. uh, victims of harassment and sexual assault. Um, so many of the procedures and the whole Title IX apparatus was really designed to like shield the university from liability and to protect harassers and rapists. And, you know, so mm. I think, you know, you know, I was certainly aware of this before me too. And I think many people were, but I think just like the volume of, you know, stuff that came out into the light, I think just really, I think it had a radicalizing effect on a lot of people. And mm. fortunately in our case, I think we were able to channel it into labor organizing, which is just <laughs> amazing, you know? Um, and so the specific thing we were fighting for was just making sure that our contract protected um, people from, you know, sexual harassment and discrimination of all kinds in the workplace. Mm. And uh, guess what we found <laughs> when <laughs> starting negotiations with Harvard? They, they were insisting on a carve-out for harassment and discrimination protections, meaning that the grievance procedure would cover everything else in the contract from late pay or, like, you know, workload issues or, you know, you know what have you. But it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to grieve sexual harassment, racial discrimination, or anything else like that. Um, so that's what we went on strike over, and we won some partial protections because of that. Um, and it's still a sticking point in, in the second contract that mm. we're now negotiating. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it manifested. Um, and it's really quite, I don't know, I don't know that I would have gotten so excited about labor if this hadn't, you know, if the possibility of fighting for you know, harassment, discrimination, protections, like, you know, had it hadn't become apparent to me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so this is a lovely example of, so, you know, if, if a union can very uh, almost conventionally say that it, sh it is a workplace issue, if you, as an employee, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a danger. I mean, you're actually at, at risk. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and so what, could be interpreted as more of, like you said, a liberal or a civil rights issue, uh, but actually can be, uh, you know, seems pretty readily uh, sort of interpreted as a uh, as as a labor issue. So, how what was the basis for the university saying that it should not be part of the the contract? I mean, what was the rationale? <laughs> There's, they're in their basis. They're just, honestly, I, I mean, I'll just say it bluntly. I think they're trying to protect rapists and racists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's something that the Columbia administration repeated um, in bargaining as well. It's something that, unfortunately, a few other grad union contracts I'm aware of, you know, they also have this carve out. Um, I mean, what they've cited is, oh, you already have Title IX. 
you know. I see. <laughs> um, or, you know, because uh, the contract applies to student workers um, and not to all students, uh, you know, irrespective of their employment status, um, you know, that we were creating like a two-tiered system or something, or they would say it's like false things about the grievance procedure. Um, so they didn't really have a leg to stand on. Um, so it really just came down to how, you know, well we were able to communicate what was going on at the ne negotiations table and how well we were able to organize. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I do think it's the case that, um, you know, this varies from grad union to grad union, but um, Harvard students, <laughs> like uh, a number of them didn't like to think they were like sort of oppressed in any way, like mm. definitely not like class oppressed or people deserving of healthcare in some cases or like, you know, um, I, I'm generalizing, but you know, these were some organizing hurdles we had to overcome because mm. people generally felt like, you know, they didn't want to create a fuss, you know, once they had gotten into Harvard. Hmm. Um, but, you know, if people were mad about anything, it was about like the fact that, you know, sexual harassment was going unchecked. Um, and so it was, it was easier in the beginning to mobilize certain members of our union around these issues. Um, and then it just became like our number one demand basically. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah. Um, Sorry, I don't know if I <laughs> answered your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, um, uh, I, I, I really, you know, the way you sort of, I think, pointed to both sides of this, where the it, it almost seems like the university was was trying to say that you know it's it's a it's some kind of let's call it a civil rights issue, and there's already you know something like Title Nine, so they're trying to separate it from like you know workplace uh kind of issues um uh you know precisely so it doesn't become sort of something you know that unions can use um and then on the other side there is this issue especially among i mean i remember from my own grad student organizing days where just you know people in academia generally i mean it takes some work to get to the point where you start thinking of yourself as a worker, you know, um, uh, and that you can ask for things on that basis. Um, uh, so it's, it's like on both sides, there's a little bit of, uh, there can be a little bit of stickiness in actually acknowledging that these are labor issues to begin with. Um, and it sounds like you guys really sort of nailed it, uh, you know, in, in, in making it a point of contention. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, you know, I think, um, I, yeah, I, I don't think, you know, they can be separated in any way. And, you know, you also know um, from being in academia, just how um, honestly, like, uh, oppressive, like, the sort of power structure can be, right? Like, the quid pro quo. Um, like there's just, I don't know, if you can Google the Harvard anthropology department and sexual harassment, hmm. like there's horrible stories of like quid pro quo sexual harassment coming out, you know, when it's your advisor or like someone in a position of power over you and your career and your livelihood, um, you know, harassing you or, you know, e even just like doing anything that might make you uncomfortable. It it's very hard to push back. Right. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, you certainly don't feel comfortable going to university HR. Um, again, Title IX is just very, very stacked against um, the victim in many ways. Um, you know, we, I personally helped a number of people who weren't in, even in our union's bargaining unit, you know, they weren't technically covered by the contract, but like we were able to, they came to us for help because they didn't have other advocates and, you know, Title IX had let them down um, or they didn't trust it. And, you know, we were, by virtue of being a union that everybody knew was um, prioritizing this, these issues, you know, we were able to provide some assistance to people even outside our bargaining unit. Hmm. But that's, yeah, it's just the whole, the whole hierarchy of academia is just like, 
it's just really ripe for this, this kind of abuse. And you certainly can't separate it from, you know, labor when it's so tied up with people's work and career. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that does lead to, you know, the the question that I actually sent you ahead of time in, in terms of, so d- does this experience uh, give you any uh, sort of traction on this issue that came up, you know, for us a couple of days ago that, you know, as socialists, you're, you know, of course, you're doing the the uh, the union organizing, um, f- you know, in and of itself, um, and then you're also trying to do this political work of, uh, you know, uh, sort of making the case for for socialist organizing or socialism in sort of within that. Um, so, yeah, d- do you? Do you have some sort of, you know, way you're thinking about this now, like uh, in, in your current work? Um, you mean the connection between labor organizing and socialism? Yeah, yeah. And how to actually do this thing of, you know, uh, talking to people about socialism while you're doing the labor organizing. Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, I sort of... You know, I, I certainly don't, it tends not to come up, you know, when yeah. I'm talking to like an auto worker, you know, I'm trying to, to recruit to flyer or, um, you know, it, even when I was talking to, you know, like a grad student who I was trying to convince to sign a petition, you know, you're just like so focused on like kind of the immediate goal at hand because yeah. that is just, organizing is just so hard, like organizing around like basic stuff is like convincing someone to sign like the most basic petition you know you have to like answer all their questions address their skepticism is this petition even going to do anything or like you know and and, you know when I've been talking to auto workers there's just like decades of I mean cynicism and like fear too of the administration caucus and like there's just so many layers of, of things to kind of work through um, when, when you're organizing around like basic sort of demands in the workplace. Yeah. Like I, you know, I find that, you know, it is important to talk about politics, but like the time and place is like, I, I really struggle with like what the time and place for that is. Hmm. Um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier, I might not have gotten involved with DSA had I not like repeatedly been meeting socialists and leftists, you know, organizing for the union. Um, I was like, oh, these are people I really respect and, you know, um, and whose views on labor I agree with. Maybe there's something to this, you know. Um, And so I almost kind of feel like maybe that's my default approach, you know, to kind of lead with the example of like, you know, you know, I'm in this like, fight for like democracy in our union with you or I'm in this fight for protections from sexual harassment or like dental insurance you know with you and then I think building that relationship first um for people with people who are like skeptical you know not even just of socialism some many (laughs) you know uh I think many auto workers voted for Trump you know they're skeptical Mm. anything having to do with the left Mm -hmm. um I, I feel like for me, that's kind of what I'm personally more comfortable with. Um, I can see many pitfalls to sort of like, you know, kind of leading too much with uh, the politics. Mm. Um, but I also think it's really important for us to like articulate a politics of reform that's not like empty of progressive or like socialist values you know hmm. um so you know if you go to uawd's website like you, you can read like our platform and and planks and you know their progressive platform and planks and i think like most rank and file reform caucuses were aware of the labor movement are, are like that um but that's not exclusively the case you know there are a lot of there's a lot of sort of a you know uh clean up the swamp mentality too mm. <laughs> you know, in uaw that's like I think kind of has a more conservative uh, bent to it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like, you know, even there, there is a point of agreement. It's like, there should, 
our union leaders should not be stealing from us. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. I think basic thing we can kind of uh, agree with uh, on across the political spectrum. Um, so yeah, so I think that's kind of my philosophy. Um, and I don't know, I think that's what works for me. I know that's like not always, um, you know, I understand why other people would take a more like socialism first approach, but, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I'm a little skeptical of whether or not that's, that's mm. the right approach either. Huh. Huh. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, this is sort of outside my like, uh, you know, sort of comfort zone in terms of what I, what I keep track of or know about. And, but I wonder if we are making a case for having some sort of like, um, uh, you know, organized uh, uh, kind of set of resources or discussion among uh, people about what works and, uh, you know, uh, examples of when it doesn't work. And it, that probably exists already and I just don't know about it. But but I wonder if, you know, uh, there's like yeah. some, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, so one thing that kind of reminds me of is, um, so we, we've had these conversations, you know, in, in Boston DSA, um, in our labor working group around strike support, you know? Mm. Um, so as, as you probably know, there's a the longest running strike in the U.S. right now that I'm aware of is the St. Vincent Nurses yeah. Strike. Um, and uh, I think uh, members of our chapters and other chapters in Massachusetts have, have been on the picket lines um, with them in solidarity for the last 100 days. Um, but, you know, we, we've had conversations about, like, what what is the best way to show up as DSA members and socialists? And you know, uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the left does have a deserved reputation for being like weird about it. You know, mm. what I mean? <laughs> there are some groups that are just weird about it um, and pushy, and um, you know, that's not building like the trust and relationships, and um, you know, it's not building. Uh, yeah, it's not building those things. Not building connections um, that I think is like at least part of the reason why it's important for um, DSA to continue prioritizing strike support. Um, but you know, when you're, when you're not weird about it, yeah. <laughs> hiding anything, but you're not like weird about it. Um, you, uh, you know, like uh, I think the, the workers on the picket line have been very deeply appreciative of DSA members who've been showing up to walk the line with them. Um, and I know, like, there have been some great conversations on the picket line about yeah. DSA um, and, you know, just curiosity and, like, who are these people who care so much about what we're trying to accomplish with our strike and why? Um, so, you know, I, I do think um, there are some guides to strike support that I think have been written kind of, I think that kind of embodies this approach of, like, you know, people will notice like who's showing up for them, mm. um, and that just is going to be goes so much further <laughs> than you know. Um, I think trying to like push a conversation about socialism or any political view hmm. prematurely. Hmm. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, it, so you and I are both members of uh, the uh, Afro Socialists and Socialists of. Color caucus in uh, in DSA, and um, uh, I'm wondering if you've had a chance to uh, sort of uh, uh, you know think about how that informs your your work. And I think the way I've posed the question beforehand was, what aspects of our work as you know socialist uh -huh. union okay. organizers of color should be and yeah okay so if if we don't want to say colorblind maybe something like you know uh labor first or class first um okay. yeah yeah um you know this is very this is very interesting um <laughs> <laughs> so i i'm a member of the bread and roses caucus okay um, which I think is like probably known in DSA for popularizing sort of like class first, or I don't know if this is right to say, like broad advocating for like, you know, a program of broad class-based demands, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
Medicare for all. Um, and so, I mean, like it's, and again, like these are things which like greatly impact racial justice, you know, gender justice and, and many other things that are not that like intersect with class. Right. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I, I've had, um, some, you know, there have been some uh, debates that I've been a part of within the caucus about, well, like, how do we frame sort of race-specific demands or, like, gender-specific demands in the context of this broader organizing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, like, my um, experience, I don't know, I, I think it's kind of like, well, I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, every like organizing drive or campaign is different, right? So what worked at Harvard maybe may not have worked at even another grad union, right? And like, I think um, the fact that, uh, you know, we had this awful um, harassment case at Harvard, I think is part of the reason why it was so effective and and salient for us Hmm. to make, you know, gender harassment um, uh, a major part of our campaign. But you know, that maybe that wouldn't have resonated as much on another, you know, in another workplace setting. Hmm. So I, I guess if the question is, you know, when do we organize on the basis of like demands that are like sort of more class focused or like at least rhetorically mm-hmm. sort of right centered around class, I don't know if that's the better distinction versus like kind of more explicitly centered around race or gender um i i don't know i guess <laughs> i don't yeah. I, I don't have like a um you know a one size fits all answer to that um but i do think i do think it's important not to shy away from like the um i don't i don't know i mean like just like the very um Yes, for for stuff that not shy away from stuff that's really actually just very clearly about just race or or mm. just gender, you know, because mm. um, I, I do think those you know I, I think the fear sometimes is like those issues will be divisive. But I, I also think they can be like very uniting and motivating. Um, but it, it really does depend on the context. I think. Mm. Mm. It, you it's not Fine. <laughs> no, no, actually, so, you know, so as, as you, I mean, you know, you, you sort of, you responded as that this is a hard question, you know, but actually, for me, or, or you know, for, for many of us, um, they're hard questions to even formulate. So I, I, I don't know that it's actually that we are struggling to answer the question as much as you know just what are the particular questions that should be raised in a specific situation is sort of i think keeps tripping us up um and um so even even when i sent you this question i you know i'm like yeah no this is not really the right way to ask this but <laughs> you know i mean um so so no uh, i i your your answer was uh, was was perfectly satisfying i mean it's it's you know um uh, it's so 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 you know i'm i think we're all trying to figure out like in cases where the first thing that's at or, or the thing that's foremost on someone's uh you know mind or their life experience at the moment is either not about labor or class directly in the way that we think about it or it is and it but it's not it's not manifesting in that way it's you know it's a consciousness issue um uh and and how does one approach that and you know what i'm finding really interesting in talking with you is that you know in your own experience you actually came to the uh, the union work through the, or, or, you know, Me Too was, was a big part of it. And, uh, you know, initially not necessarily as a clear labor question, if I hope I'm stating that right. Uh, but yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, you know, I, I mean, like, I think when, 
when you're reacting to something like that. I mean, at least when I was reacting to like, I, you know, I, I mean, I think the other thing about me too is like, it's, it's very, you know, I think we've been talking about it like a little bit, um, not academically, but like analytically. It's mm-hmm. like it's a very personal experience for a lot of people, like, you know, especially a lot of like women <laughs> yeah. and, you know, people who had been the victims of various kinds of like, you know, again, like gender based harassment um, and, and sexual assault, you know, regardless of gender identity. It, it was it was very personal, you know, and I think so, like when you, you know, when I when I, I think like many other people learned about like specific cases of of harassment you know like it's the intuitive there's just like a very gut reaction to it it's just immense anger and then I think um you know immense distrust Mm. (laughs) of um you know the institution and and the people that had like clearly failed to protect um you know people on campus so you know, I, I don't think there was like, I don't know that there was like immediately a lot of analysis that went into it. But I, I do think if the union hadn't been there to like provide like <laughs> essentially kind of like a class-based analysis, right? Like you are the workers mm. um, and the university doesn't care about your well-being, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh I, you know, I, it's true, like, if that hadn't been there, then, you know, I, I think maybe it could have been channeled, like, in a different direction, you know, like, reforming Title IX or something, which is still very important, like, something that um, people on campus are working on. But, like, you know, um, it, it was really important, I think, to have that, to have it sort of be channeled in, um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of class at the time, but I, was re- I really was thinking in terms of power. Hmm. I was like, how do we actually get more power for students and, and student workers? And there was really no other answer to hmm. me other than through unionization hmm. and, and, and contract. Um, uh, so I'm sorry, I, like, I wanted to follow up on something. Um, Please. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, just going back to the whole question of when do you make more of a class base versus like a race base or, you know, part, you know, more particular sort of demand. Um, I think so much of it is about meeting people where they're at, you know? So I, I do think we were able to tap into like widespread anger on campus. And there are people who are skeptics of that approach, right? Like, oh, you're never gonna organize like <laughs> men or like, you know, certain groups of people around sexual harassment or because it only affects certain people mm. or like, racial discrimination because it only affects certain people. But I mean, the movements that have like galvanized the greatest numbers of people have been Me Too and Black Lives Matter, yeah. right? Yeah. The last years. And of course, Bernie's campaign. Um, but like, it's, I, I don't know, that's why it really boggles my mind when, you know, and especially young people, right? Um, yeah. Who, who I think are like, certainly our, our targets for, for labor organizing and recruitment into DSA. Uh, so it boggles my mind that we wouldn't sort of like take that a little bit more seriously and, and talk about it. Like, you know, think mm-hmm. about how we can kind of incorporate that more into like the DSA program and, and the labor program. Well, what a, what a sharp and, you know, sort of wonderful segue into the, you know, and this is also something we were talking about a few days ago is that, you know, the balance of effort, uh, you know, among socialists, like sort of the w- within workplace and outside the workplace organizing, um, uh, you know, as as you pointed out, the, uh, the you know, the Black Lives Matter, for instance, and, or anti-police brutality was, uh, you know, it, it, in some ways, almost weirdly, the most powerful thing that's coming out of the pandemic, like, I mean, in terms of mass organizing, where you would think that this was, if there was any time for, uh, you know, a whole, uh, entire sectors of workers to become organized and powerful, uh, it would have been 
during these last few months. Um, uh, and the fact that that really didn't happen on a mass scale, um, and maybe we should say hasn't happened yet, maybe there's, you know, uh, it's still playing itself out. Um, I mean, do you, do you think that says something basic about the balance, like of, you know, uh, power or where we should be kind of focusing or is it yeah I, I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah um I mean I don't think so I mean I think some of the most important labor work I mean I mean just in general I think what's really amazing about DSA is you know I, I know I'm a very recent DSA member and so are so are many DSA members right but I, I do think um, some of the most valuable work that's being done in an organization is, is taking is is the work that's taking like a long view, right? Mm. It's really about very patient organizing and sort of institution building o- over time. Um, for instance, uh, we touched on the rank and file strategy mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the, on the panel the other day, um, and. Uh, you know, this tactic of encouraging DSA members to get jobs in strategic sectors, it, it's, it has, it's a very patient one, you know. Um, it requires uh, so much commitment um, and so much support and, and training and, like, you know, forming of activist networks and, you know, eventually, like, reform caucuses and that kind of thing within unions. Like, this is, I, I don't think anything about, <laughs> you know, actually the current labor environment should should detract from, I think, that strategy hmm. because it's a long-term one. And, you know, sometimes you see fruits more, more quickly than others. Um, and, I you know, I, I'm not saying there won't be short-term payoffs because I think there already have been. But, you know, um, I, I think I mentioned this, I, or I don't know if I mentioned this the other day, but... Um, there, I, I know people in um, the UAW who uh, industrialized, you know, they took um, jobs in the plants um, in the 70s so that they could become rank and file activists. Mm. And they're organizing now and like seeing them and like the impact they've made in their locals over the years and the impact they're still making now in the, in our current reform movement is, is just really inspiring. So I, you know, I, I hope that's patient work that will continue Um you know, the strike support work is, is patient work that, you know, I think has already paid off in many ways. Like I, I do think, I know in Boston DSA, we've built closer relationships with the MNA, the Massachusetts Nurse Association. Um, solidarity work we've done with the BTU has, you know, brought us closer to them, I think. And, you know, all of this work um, also, you know, just to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier about recruiting socialists, you know, yeah. I think all of it really improves our image and, and makes people, you know, uh, more aware of who we are and, and what we stand for. So, um, so I don't know, I guess, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are things we should, you know, I, I think, I do think we should kind of take a look at like what did or didn't happen during the pandemic. But mm-hmm. I also think a lot of the work that DSA is doing is like labor work is stuff that it it's also going to kind of take a while to, mm. to manage, you know, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and, and of course, on the, the, the side of the protests over the summer, I mean, uh, you know, it's not clear that they would have exploded the way they did had not there been already all the work of the last few years, you know, of uh, repeated organizing against, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, Ferguson and and well before that, um, uh, and all those networks being in place, you know, I mean, it's hard to predict when any one thing sort of leads to, you know, uh, a sort of a mass movement. But, but yeah, we could also say that of, that there was a lot of patient organizing behind those protests. Um, uh, yeah. I think I I think you kind of hit it on the head, which is that, you know, there was a there was many years, decades, centuries, you know, of even of organizing that that led to that moment. Um, 
So I, I think what matters, you know, is like creating the structure now um, within DSA, but also obviously within our workplaces and unions to be able to take advantage of moments like that when they come, um, like these, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like the the spark, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, because I think the more, if there's underlying structure in place, you know, if there is like a network of connected workplace activists or, you know, civil rights activists, um, you know, that I think is what can like kind of take it to the next level and then also prevent all of that energy from just dissipating away, right? Once when the moment is, is kind of over. For me, talking with Shu was the perfect follow-up to my previous conversation with Jerome Scott of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. That discussion was also centered on the question of socialist organizing in a labor union, though in a very different historical and occupational setting. While this conversation was about the specific case of graduate student organizing at a major private U.S. university, I came away with at least two broadly applicable reasons for socialist labor organizing around civil rights issues in the workplace. First, workers can experience sexism, racism, and other violations as more urgent or hurtful than poor working conditions narrowly defined. Second, employers often work hard specifically to prevent workers from organizing around such violations um, and around political questions more broadly. And that should tell us something. We'll continue exploring these issues in coming episodes with other socialist labor organizers. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>